in the midst of a sermon series in the Gospel of John. And uh, this is our 18th week in that series as we work our way through the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 7, uh, verses 32 through 52, and we're calling this particular message Preconceptions, Preferences, and Prejudices. I uh, came across a, an interesting little article here. It says, now here's an exciting and new way to meet an old need. A drinkable book. Think about that for a moment. A drinkable book. Uh, a blog from Discover Magazine reports, according to the World Health Organization, three and a half million people die every year due to health concerns stemming from unsanitary water. So to combat this alarming trend, scientists have been working to produce and distribute what they're calling drinkable books to people that live in third world countries. But this isn't your ordinary book. Each page can be torn out and used sort of like a coffee filter to turn dirty water into safe, drinkable water. Isn't that interesting? It's the brainchild of a woman by the name of Teresa Dankovich from Carnegie Mellon University. Dr. Dankovich developed page drinking water, which is a, a sturdy sheet of paper loaded with silver and copper nanoparticles that kill dangerous microbes living in the dirty water. That's just kind of mind-blowing to me. The paper, it says, eliminates 99% of all the bacterias living even in the dirtiest of waters. Man, isn't that cool? What a, what a great way to provide to those who are in need. And then I, when I read that, I thought, now if someone could just invent a drinkable book for our souls, right? Oh, wait, they already have, isn't that right? That's what God's word is, a drinkable book for our souls. Well, in our text today from John chapter 7, uh, from God's word, the drinkable book, we find a continuation of the events that took place at the Feast of Tabernacles. We talked about this last week. And in this passage, the, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the chief priests, were seeking to arrest Jesus. The people in the crowd were divided about Jesus' identity, and Jesus' own brothers don't believe in him. And so in the midst of all of this confusion and misinformation and expect, uh, opposition, Jesus kind of steps onto the stage, if you will. It is, we, we saw this last week, the climax of the annual national celebration and worship service. And Jesus makes an astonishing offer. You remember that? When he said, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. He shouts it out there in the temple courtyards as they're going through this elaborate traditional ceremony. Anyone who believes in me can come and drink living water. Wow. Well, as we go further into this chapter, this chapter raises some important questions about faith and belief in Jesus. It challenges us to examine our own beliefs and understandings of who Jesus is and what he means to us. I think one of the key themes of this passage is the role of believing faith. Believing faith in our relationship with Jesus. The Pharisees, the chief priests, they rejected Jesus. Why? because they refuse to believe that he is the Messiah, the one sent from God. They were blinded. They were blinded by their own preconceived notions about uh, 
who the Messiah should be, what they should look like, what they should do. And, and so what were they doing? They were looking for a powerful earthly king who would overthrow the Romans and reestablish a Jewish kingdom. Jesus didn't look like that at all. And so they could not accept the idea that the Messiah might come as a humble servant who would suffer and yes, die for all of mankind. Well, in contrast, there are those who believed in Jesus. They recognized him as the Son of God. They were able to see beyond their own expectations and understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of many of the prophecies of the Old Testament. They saw in him love and the grace of God, and they were willing to follow him even when it was difficult. Well, like those ancient people, all of us have preconceptions and preferences and prejudices that may need to be examined or adjusted in order to respond more fully to Christ's invitation. You know, belief in Jesus is not always easy. Is that right? Sometimes it's hard. It requires us to set aside our own desires, our own expectations, and we live in a culture where we don't do that very well, right? This culture is all about me, my expectations, my desires. Have it your way. It's the Burger King mentality, right? And we apply that to our spiritual life. But Jesus comes and he says, trust in my plan, in my purpose. And so it requires us to be humble and to open uh, be open to the leading of the Holy Spirit, the living water that Jesus offered so freely. C.S. Lewis, the, the great Christian apologist in his famous book, Mere Christianity, popularized this particular question. He said, who was Jesus? Who was Jesus? Lord, liar, or lunatic? It's called a trilemma. A trilemma, this, this logic question that challenges us to examine our beliefs about Jesus and to consider the implications of those beliefs for our life. Well, in chapter 7, we see this trilemma illustrated in the reactions of those people around Jesus. You know, controversy always surrounded Jesus. Wherever he went, there was controversy. You see, what we believe about who he is always shapes our response to him. And so I want to invite you to read the opening section of today's text together with me. The words are on the screen. John 7, verses 32 through 36. Let's begin. <clears throat> the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Jesus, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Amen. Amen. The word of God. And so, 
let's examine some of the preconceptions and preferences and prejudices of these first century people. And as we do that, we're going to consider our own response to Jesus in the 21st century. So let's start by considering the possibility that Jesus is a lunatic. Now, no one actually used this exact term. There were many, though, who had and still have this prejudice and preconception about Jesus. In fact, some of Jesus' own family thought that he was out of his mind. And some of the religious leaders of his day assumed that Jesus was possessed by a demon. Now, today, we're a little bit more sophisticated. And so folks may not say outright that Jesus was a lunatic, but instead, their own preconceptions and preferences minimize or diminish Jesus' role. And they do that when they say things like this. He was a great moral teacher, or he was a very wise man. Uh, others may not call Jesus a lunatic, but they confidently proclaim things like, uh, oh, especially regarding some of his more explicit teachings about oh, money or sexuality or forgiveness. They'll say things like, oh, that's just crazy, right? You don't really believe those outdated, old-fashioned, superstitious ideas that Jesus taught, do you? Come on. The idea, though, that Jesus is a lunatic is a difficult proposition to accept. If we look at the historical record, Jesus was a man of great wisdom and insight for, for certain. He, he spoke with authority and clarity and his teachings continue to inspire and challenge us today. And so it's difficult to believe that someone who was so wise and insightful could be a lunatic. I want you to listen to Mr. C.S. Lewis's take on this. Here's his writing. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, Mr. Lewis writes. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. He goes on and he says, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something else, something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense. I love that phrase. No patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. There's no room from Jesus' viewpoint for us to accept him as a lunatic. In verse 14, uh, 34, Jesus says, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And so those that are listening to him are confused, and they're clueless about his statement. Where is he going, they say. We can always track him down. Come on, what does he mean? It makes no sense. Their misunderstanding about Jesus' statements are rooted in their inability 
to receive Jesus' teachings because of their own preconceptions, preferences, and prejudices. And so rather than listen more or investigate further, they simply dismiss everything he has to say as wrong, as weird, as ridiculous. It's all lunacy because it doesn't fit their agenda. Well, brothers and sisters, I want to say this to you this morning. We, too, must guard against this kind of thinking. We must be careful to not fit Jesus' purposes and plans into a mold of our own making. As we listen to his teachings, we must be sure that the filter that we're using is the right one so that the water that we receive is living water, not polluted by our own preferences, our own preconceptions, our own prejudices. Let us never reduce the holy teachings of Jesus Christ to the category of irrelevancy or lunacy. Well, then this leads us to our next point. Let's consider now the possibility that Jesus is a liar. A liar. And this is another difficult proposition to accept given the historical record of his life. Jesus preached a message of love, of mercy, of grace, and he lived a life of selflessness and service to others. He claimed to be the Son of God, and he demonstrated his authority repeatedly through miracles, acts of healing. And so it is difficult to believe that someone who lived and acted in this way could be a liar. But some in Jesus' day and some in this day still hold this position. Oh, it's all made up. Oh, it's a fairy tale for childlike thinkers, unable to grasp a more enlightened position. Well, let's listen, uh, or let's read together another section of our, our text, verses 40 through 44. Let's begin. When they heard his words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him. But no one laid hands on him. Amen. The word of God. And so as the confusion and the misunderstanding over Jesus grows, the people begin to take sides. I want you just to kind of imagine the tension that was in that crowd there in the temple courtyards. Some people believed totally. And some totally rejected everything he said. And so it was a, a moment of extreme polarity, controversy, opposition. Jesus was present with them, and yet opinions were completely divided and scattered about. He's a prophet. He's the Messiah. No, he's not. He's, not. he's from the wrong village. Arrest him. He's a scoundrel. He's a liar. Totally opposite sides. Does that sound like any culture you might be familiar with? We live in a time where we're very divided. 
over politics, over religion, over race, over anything that you can plug in there. We can divide quickly and we become ugly and argumentative and hateful as the people in Jesus' day did. But do you know what the real problem with all this controversy about Jesus is? It's this. The people know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. Does that make sense? They know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. They think they know all the facts, but really, they only know bits and pieces. They assume motivations and agendas without exploring the heart of the one speaking. And friends, to truly know Jesus is to know more than facts and Bible verses and history. To know him takes time. It takes a releasing of our own preferences and a pursuit of his heart. If we reduce Jesus to a mere historical figure who set up rules for us to follow, then we will find ourselves find, falling into the very same traps that these first century people did. And our faith will be built not on the truth of Jesus Christ, but on a foundation of assumptions and innuendos and yes, even lies. In 1980... A young woman by the name of Rosie Ruiz entered the Boston Marathon. She started the race looking great. As the runners approached the finish line, she was leading the pack by quite a, a, quite a bit. And it turned out breaking all kinds of records. And so as she crossed the finish line, the crowd applauded, they shouted, and she was crowned the champion of the Boston Marathon. Quickly, there was some suspicion that was aroused. This was a woman who had never won any marathon before. How is it that she could win the prestigious Boston Marathon? And so the officials began to examine the cameras along the route. And it was later discovered that not long after she began the race, that she exited the course and got onto the subway. And she rode it for 16 miles. Then she rejoined the route, running the last segment of the race and crossing the finish line in first place. Of course, she was eventually disqualified from the race. Can you imagine the scandal? Well, friends, Jesus has laid a course for us. And he has run the race. And he invites us to follow in his footsteps. We don't get to do it our own way. We don't get to take shortcuts or jump on the subway to speed ahead. You see, Jesus' way is the way of truth and life. And any other way is a lie. And it leads to death. And so as God's people, we must be a people of truth. And as we grow in the truth of Jesus, we must find ourselves casting aside our own preconceptions, our own prejudices, and our own personal preferences so that we can run the race with Jesus more effectively. 
so that we can receive the reward that he has already earned on our behalf. May we finish well. Well, this leads then to the third option. If Jesus is not a lunatic, and if he's not a liar, then that means that Jesus is indeed the Lord, the Lord of all. And that is the conclusion that countless millions of people throughout history have reached. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. And then he demonstrated through his authority, through his teachings, through his miracles, he lived a life of perfect love and service and he died on the cross to atone for the sins of humanity, your sins and my sins. He rose from the dead on the third day and he ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. When those who were sent to arrest Jesus for his lunacy, for his lies, for his so-called blasphemy, when they were sent to arrest him, they returned empty-handed. And I love this verse in verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like Jesus. He is on a level of his own. He is unrivaled. He is unmatched. He is unequaled. He indeed is Lord of all. And if Jesus is Lord, then it has profound implications for your life and for mine. It means that we are called to follow him, to love him, and to obey his teachings. We're not called to do things in the way that seems best to us. We're not called to force others to fit into our ideas and our preconceptions and our prejudices and our preferences. Instead, we are called to look to Jesus. It means that we are called to live lives of love and service, just as our Lord did. It means that we have the hope of eternal life in him when we do things his way. And it means that our preconceptions and our preferences and our prejudices must fade as we walk the path of Jesus. And so may we say with him, not my will, but thine be done. So, let's each ask ourselves this morning, who do we believe Jesus to be? Who do you believe Jesus to be? If we believe that he is the Lord, then may we follow him with all our hearts. Let us love him, serve him, follow his teachings, and let us live lives that reflect his love and his grace to the world around us. We're not called to reflect his judgment. That's for him to take care of. We reflect his love and his grace. And then we share the good news of his love with all that we meet. That is what it means to call him Lord. Anything else is inadequate. Singer and songwriter Sandra McCracken writes these words. 
She says, there's a, a call button above every seat on a commercial airplane. And in all my travels, I don't think I've ever used it. I'm not sure if it's due to, to shyness or to pride, as there have certainly been times when I acutely needed help while seated, but I did not press the button. While traveling, traveling recently, for example, I endured some delays and I was very thirsty, and, and yet I waited to ask for anything until the plane reached 10,000 feet when the flight attendants came row by row to drink, grant our drink requests. I didn't press the call button. It always seemed more courteous to wait. Well, she goes on and she says, as Jesus hung on the cross, one of the last phrases he spoke out loud was, I am thirsty. I thirst. This three-word inclusion in the Gospels is a subtle and yet significant acknowledgement of Jesus' human need. His thirst dignifies our humanity. He offered up this holy complaint, a declaration of his physical need. In essence, Jesus pressed the call button. You see, it's God who is the one who promises to supply all our needs. Jesus invites us to participate, to receive, to ask. Sometimes we're even called to ask and ask again. You see, our Lord Jesus invites us to press the call button. And then he invites us to wait for him. Sometimes we will wait well beyond when the plane has reached 10,000 feet. But he calls us to ask and to wait and to hope and then to receive. The springs of living water that he gives will never run dry. And so brothers and sisters, may God grant us the faith to believe fully in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and then may he guide us on the path of righteousness all the days of our lives. Will you pray with me? Father God, we are so grateful. Grateful, Lord, for this invitation.